Welcome to Bewildered. I'm Martha Beck, here with Rowan Mangan. At this crazy moment in history, a lot of people are feeling bewildered, but that actually may be a sign we're on track. Human culture teaches us to come to consensus, but nature, our own true nature, helps us come to our senses. Rowan and I believe that the best way to figure it all out is by going through bewilderment into bewilderment. That's why we're here. So, Marty, I think there's a pretty good chance that our listeners are out there going, oh, wow, I have a lot of cultural messages in my head and Mm -hmm. it's not that easy to access the voice of my true nature. Yes. And I don't know, they might be thinking, is there anything else that I could do other than listening to this podcast to help me learn to listen to my heart? Well, I had this question, even as a young child, I would say, I am not happy. And people would say, well, it's all in your head. And I'd be like, I know, get it out of my head. But nobody could really help me do that. And so um, in my 20s, I sort of made up a system to help me detach from cultural messages and connect with my true nature. And it ended up being my career as a life coach and then training people to do the same thing. And I think that, you know, it's just like people who feel the urge to heal themselves, help others heal and heal the world, Mm. that this this term life coach sort of slots into that in our culture. And people take the training to hang out a shingle and become life coaches. People take the training because it's like getting life coaching yeah you know and people also take the training just to learn to access their own true nature yeah it was originally just a access your own true nature course Mm -hmm. but when you've mastered that you really want to share it with other people and people want to be shared with and they will pay you money so if that's the way you want to go that's why it ended up being life coach training but it's actually wayfinder which is different. It's about finding your way by connecting with your true nature and and steering your own course. So if people are interested, you can Google Wayfinder Life Coach Training or go to MarthaBeck.com and you will find your way. Yes, you will. Hi, this is Marty. And I'm Ro. And here we are at another episode of Bewildered, the podcast for people trying to figure it out. I myself have been trying to figure it out of late by reading tea leaves. Mm. And Marty was drinking some sparkling water yesterday and she sort of gazed deep into the bubbles and suddenly just had it all figured out. Yeah. Yeah. Because, see, the problem is people try to read solid matter, like tea leaves or coffee grounds or, I don't know, tarot cards. Ha! I say, it's all about gas, Rowan. It's gas. Yes, the bubbles will tell you everything is made of gas. Everything, if it heats up enough, becomes gas. We are gas to gas. Forget ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We're all made of gas. And I am, that's literally true. If you heat something up enough, it all becomes gas. Rose giving me that look (laughs) because you were being so funny and then you just like couldn't help just nerding it up. I was like, no, it's literally true. I'm afraid they won't believe me. She's so funny. She does this all the time. She'll like be da-da-da. That's literally true, by the way. Shakespeare did say that. Shakespeare's <laughs> oh wife was that way. My children want to kill me when I do this. Okay. The point is I am going to dedicate myself to being a more gassy person. I don't know how that could be possible. <laughs> Rude. Yeah, well... Brace yourself, (laughs) because that's what it's all about. 
What is it all about? The bubbles, the gases. Okay. Okay. So what are you trying to figure out? But for reals. For realsies. Okay. So I'm going to go deep this okay. episode. Okay. Wait, let me take a breath. <sighs> all right. Go. Oh, You're releasing some gas. <laughs> that's what i always do move on all right so i'm trying to figure out the whole conundrum of convenience culture in Mm. middle class america in late capitalism Mm. you know i went out this morning and (laughs) to take lila to the park and there at the side of my stroller is a cup holder because when you're walking with a stroller, you need somewhere to put your coffee. Well, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> later I went to the supermarket and there's a cup holder in the cart at the supermarket, which <laughs> was like, because God forbid, while you're pushing your cart through the supermarket, you don't have anywhere to put your coffee. I mean, clearly we're, we're expected to have coffee at all times. At all times. Um, anyway, so I went as, as a true, like suburban 21st century American mom <laughs> I after the supermarket I went to Starbucks drive through <laughs> where where I sat in the car using a very special setting that our car has which is designed drive throughs <laughs> literally what it says in the instructions <laughs> And what it does is it it keeps you from the inconvenience of having to put your foot on the brake <laughs> while waiting in line at the drive-thru. So you press this button. It's called um, like auto vehicle hold or something like that. And then you can just sit there and take your foot off the brake because it's so inconvenient to have to have your foot on the brake in the line at the drive-thru to get your coffee, which you will never be left without a holder for. <laughs> Was there a holder? Wasn't there a cup holder by the door, to, in the door? Oh, our car has 17 cup holders. I'm Wait, not making what? that up. Yeah. Our new car, because what? I'm a nerd and I looked at the YouTube videos, it has 17 cup holders. I don't know why where are they in the trunk i mean how do you fit that many cup holders i don't know like we could we could work through it if we went through the but they they really were very keen on us knowing this (laughs) the the car okay the car only seats how many people i think it's like six you can seat six people in it and it has 17 cup holders yeah well yeah so each of us is expected to have a minimum two cups of coffee with us at all times. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Sounds right. Including the baby. <laughs> Sounds right. Well, and she's got one on her stroller too. She's got two on her car seat. I swear to God, you guys, I'm not kidding. On each side of her car seat is a cup holder. There what? are two cup holders on her car seat. What? Have you seen them? I didn't notice. Are you kidding me? Yeah. No, I'm not kidding. So we actually have 19. <laughs> so there I am in the Starbucks drive-thru, not having to have the inconvenience of putting my foot on the brake between edgings forward because there's a lot of other SUVs in the line at the drive-thru from people who will never be without a holder for their cup, no matter what they do or where they go. Anyway, so I get to the window. I order three coffees because 
you know. That's what you needed minimum. <laughs> well, I mean, just to justify all the holders, you know. And uh, anyway, so I said, <laughs> can I have three coffees? And seriously, honestly, the guy said to me, would you like a cup holder for this? <laughs> and I just had a moment of like, I was looking into this man's friendly face with his little visor and his little you know, Starbucks uniform. And I was just looking into the abyss, the end of the world, <laughs> the total like flash before everything dies. <laughs> and when the end comes, you will know it from its excessive number of cup holders. <laughs> okay. I have two things to say. The first thing is I have been coaching people for 30 years and asking them what they need in their lives and never once has someone asked for or, or dreamt of a car with 19 cup holders in it. So what's a car? It's like a tiny room that yeah. you go sit in and then go, get somewhere else. Uh-huh. Like where, when did it become like a really important part of that was a receptacle for, for beverages? Maybe like, we're supposed to be drinking a lot more, like drinking a lot more. Maybe it's for hard liquor. Have you ever considered that? Mm. No, I haven't, but I'm, I really am now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need you need your hard liquor, two glasses of hard liquor a piece, and then coffee. The baby gets one glass of hard liquor, then one coffee. Yeah. You know, in the car seat there. It should just all be Irish coffees. <laughs> it's just more economical. There you go. Put your liquor in your coffee, fools. 19 Irish coffees, please, and it's for me. <laughs> No, the other thing I have to say is when, when you do look into the abyss, uh-huh. the one thing that can comfort you is uh-huh. it would hold this immense cup. <laughs> <laughs> the abyss is like a cup holder ready to take the burden of all my angst. <laughs> Actually, maybe that's what all those cup holders are for. American angst. Oh, Oh, oh! Could I get a cup of angst, please? <laughs> decaf, <laughs> decaf angst, please. Wow, I have not. I do not know how to figure this out. Perhaps one of our listeners will send in something that will enlighten us as to why we need nineteen cup holders in our car. I sure hope so. I do, Marty. What are you trying to figure out? Oh, mine is so much more primitive. This is the thing. <laughs> all of yours are advanced and and like knowledgeable, and all of mine's are. Like about poo or something. <laughs> is, is this related to heat everything up and it becomes gas? Because that is literally Not, true. That is literally true, yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. I can't believe I thought this is something only very few people in the world would ever know. <laughs> and now everybody out there is going to know. And here it is. I have a tail. And yes. I can't figure out what to do about it <laughs> i mean it's not a huge tail just wag it <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't wag it's ossified oh it's yeah my like my little tailbone we all have a tailbone we have a tailbone we have vestigial tails and some babies are born with little little triangular tail like a hippopotamus but i'm not one of those <laughs> mine <laughs> <laughs> this I'm is literally true <laughs> no but if, look it up google it i bet there are just all kinds of, i bet there's a whole like porn fetish site for people who are born with tails anyway 
my tailbone sticks out more than most people's, but it's covered by skin. You wouldn't know. And pants, usually. <laughs> <laughs> There's skin and pants, but <laughs> underneath all of that. No flesh, though, folks. That's the problem. It's, she's, a, she's a slim little thing, my wife. My spine kind of sticks out like a stegosaurus. It's not a pretty picture back there. But I never <laughs> thought any of it would be a stegosaurus. <laughs> yeah sweetie it doesn't but i you know i never thought it would be a big deal to have a tail to have a tail this particular kind of tail thought it would be a big deal until we decided that what with my foot surgery and the pandemic and everything we were going to get really ambitious about fitness and get someone a friend who knows pilates brilliantly to come put us through pilates at workouts Mm -hmm. yeah and so we got ray the most generous and and flexible and <laughs> admirably um six-packed man in a, in existence really wonderful person and in, uh, so he comes over and uh karen and Ro and i will all get out our little mats and he starts with like sub beginning pilates <laughs> like see if you can lift one arm sort of pilates <laughs> and we're like and he's uh, so sweet he's like you're doing great see if you can lift it a little higher <laughs> Right off, see if you can get the whole thing off the mat. <laughs> no, straighten your wrist. <laughs> I can only do the hand, Ray. Well, that's great. <laughs> that you're doing great. <laughs> so he was so kind. Um, and it turned out, oh, I actually, I don't know what it is. I took martial arts for a long time. I do, do a lot of sit-ups. But I actually could do most of the sub-beginning parts. She's obnoxiously good at Pilates. At sub-beginning Pilates. So I was like, I was thrilled with myself. I was doing the hundreds and I was doing, I don't even know what that is. I was doing like, grab your eel or I don't even know. They're different. <laughs> Good. Wait, wait. Sorry, oh, no. That most, don't grab okay, Ray's eel. All, that has nothing to do with Pilates <laughs> and is also totally obscene. <laughs> That's just bad. Okay, boys, now we're going to play Grab Your Eel. Oh, what have I done? What have I done? I have to tell you that in martial arts, we would learn these moves that were like returning viper, where you kick someone in the face, but then you kick them in the face again. Returning viper. And then there was, and I I made up one called Slapping Panda. (laughs) Like, I will roll down a hill in a very adorable fashion and slap the hell out of you. Anyway, so we were not doing crap eel. What is wrong with me? Uh, I don't know the names of the things, but I was doing them. And there was one called the crab. That's what, oh, God, now it's associated with crab eel. That is legitimately called the crab. That's literally true. Um, then there's a very basic move. Where you just put your legs up in the air, and then you put your body up in the air, and you're balanced on your butt. And Karen and Row are like, done and done. And I try to do this. And I began to roll uncontrollably. I rolled backwards. I rolled sideways. I rolled either way. I rolled front ways. And Ray was going... What exactly is hard about this for you? And it's I'm a like, triumph for those of us I who actually have butts. I was rolling like some sort of weird weeble that wobbles, but it don't fall down. It was hilarious. It was so humiliating. And I was like, why can I not do this? And then I, I, I like 
felt the part of myself that was on the mat. And it's like a, a Babe, damn... did you grab your eel? <laughs> oh. oh. That's I mean, what... tail. I became a lesbian to avoid this kind of discussion. Um, no, it's like a golf ball. My tailbone sticks out like a little golf ball. And they're trying to get me to balance on this completely round, very small thing. I mean, try to balance on a golf ball under your, like, pelvis and see how that goes for you she was like a little spinning top like you could have could have just come up at the point where she was actually balanced for a millisecond and just spin her around she would have just yeah i'd get i'd get the position and then just start to spin and roll uncontrollably i'm gonna get a, i'm thinking of making a little stand for my tail like a little hemorrhoid cushion but teeny. it's not in the hemorrhoid position it's a tail <laughs> How would our dogs feel if you just said, don't wag your hemorrhoids? <laughs> Those aren't hemorrhoids, bro. Those are tails. I'm just thinking if the donut shape would be useful, your tail could go in the middle. Yeah. You know, actually, that's very kind of you, and it would probably work. <laughs> anyway, I was so embarrassed, and I was like, um, I was like, Ray, I'm not going to make, I'm not going to let you feel my tail because I don't, I think that would be, make us both feel really weird but I'm going to have rope touch it and tell you about it <laughs> so we're basically you know the same as all those clients yeah exactly the same so then I said um so we started joking and and Ray said oh I'm sorry I don't mean to to be offensive and I said look I'm I have a tail. I can't take offense. Like, what right do I have to take offense at anything? And he said, I'm exactly the same way. And I was so overjoyed. I was like, you also have a tail? And he was like, no. I, oh, my I, God, oh no. My God. He just, you could see him throwing up in his mouth. He was like, no, I just, I'm hard to offend. <laughs> <laughs> Funny oh, he's like, you have a tail? I was like, if he's doing it with a tail, I can do anything. It's like, there's somebody like me. So I haven't figured it out at all. But the hemorrhoid cushion thing is, um, yeah, is a really good lead. It's so an image that you. will stay with us all, probably. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Change, eh? Mm, it sure does keep happening. I feel like there's something that you, Martha Beck, have created that will help us understand how change affects us and how to manage it. Oh, by coincidence, now that you mention it, I have. It's called the change cycle. Mm. It's about four aspects of the whole process of change. And we've put the information together in one handy place so that the people can refer to it when they're going through change. And you know what else? We also made podcast episodes about each of the four squares in the cycle that are also on this new page that we've made for the peoples. Well, how remarkable is that? All right, you can find out all about the change cycle at marthabeck.com slash change. Well, as you know, in this podcast, we help people from bewilderment to bewilderment, their wild true nature. And what we want to talk about this episode is a bit different from what we usually do because usually we're talking about areas of life in which we need to move away from culture and towards our nature. That's right, right? <laughs> Good. Yep. Yep. And then, but today we want to talk about the strategy that culture tends to use to try and keep us in its little box. So we've called this episode Unshameable because we're talking about when you get shamed 
So not shame itself as such, but to be shamed and then to be unshameable. How do we make ourselves unshameable by the forces of the culture, be they your mother-in-law or your garbage man person? And So now we know who yours are. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so ashamed that I let that slip. Um, anyway, so how to be, how we can be shamed and, and then what it takes to be unshameable by the culture. Yeah. And, and to start that off, I think we, we have to define a little bit what we mean by shame, because it's such a huge topic. It's, it really Mm. has all kinds of arms and legs, Yeah, but basically it's the way people give each other an energetic shove in the direction of doing what's expected or Mm. what that person expects. I just am reading a book that said narcissists have no shame, but they shame everyone else all the time. And they control everyone with shame because other people would be ashamed to be so shaming, but narcissists aren't. So shame is an incredibly powerful tool for socialization. I'm sorry, but I just can't let that go by without saying, what else do narcissists do, Marty? Come on. They make other people watch videos on YouTube. Bad animals, cute animal friends, it don't they? say that in the book, just <laughs> any video from YouTube. It was implied that it was about cute animal friends. And I vowed to stop making people watch YouTube videos. Oh, my God, ask my children. They're ready to shoot me. <laughs> um, and then when Ro came in to make this podcast, I was like, <laughs> "We had a this will get us in the mood. Show you a video. Uh, I am literally still reading this book that says that is a narcissistic behavior. Oh, dear. Between that and my tail, I'm just, I'm amazed they let me run around loose. I'm so sorry that I interrupted your really good, serious sociological point about narcissism to talk about animal videos. But you did not do it in a way that was very shaming. Oh, it was like you. a suggestion. Hmm. So the way, and we all know what it feels like when somebody shames us. And it can be something as simple as a snicker or a sneer when we're, you know, we say something that's really from our heart and somebody else goes, oh, right. I mean, that hmm. is enough. We're so delicately attuned hmm. to fitting in hmm. that being deliberately shamed can control us to an incredible degree. Without any violence, without any legal recourse, it's just other people like pushing shame at us. I just got the image in my head of like one um, Kelpie sheep, I don't know what you call or a border collie, say dog, Mm. you know, um, herding sheep, Mm -hmm. like and just running around and keeping them in this clump. You know, you only just need to run a little bit like this and get into that sheep's vision and they'll they'll back into the, the herd. Yeah. 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 I used to teach sociology 101 and I would send my students out. I'd say, break a law that doesn't hurt anybody and then do something that somebody disapproves of and see which one gets you the most behavioral change. So they would go out and like, they would go through a stoplight without stop or a stop sign at night without stopping. And they'd say, hmm, fine. But then they would do something that was considered shameful, like wearing pants that were too short for the fashion. And they would be like emotionally devastated. And like, I'm never wearing pants like that again. And it's a very, very powerful tool. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's actually kind of the opposite of what we're trying to do in this podcast, where we're trying to nudge you a little bit away from the culture and into what feels true for you. 
um, the, this this process of being shamed by others who, who who are the voice of the culture in that instance is what we're talking about today. Yeah, and you really can't talk about shame these days without referring to kind of the goddess of shame. <laughs> And I mean that with all respect and admiration, Brene Brown. Brene owns shame. She does. She yeah, has she, a patent on it. She gets a royalty every time someone feels shame. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's a wonderful person, and she's a researcher at the University of Houston. And she she put out a definition a definition of shame that we thought was a good one. Yeah, so she talks about shame as, and this is the quote, an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging, which I think it's worth just reflecting on because I think we have like a general understanding of the feeling of shame and kind of what it is. But I certainly, before I read Brene's work, I'd never put together that that's exactly what's going on is it, that the that you're flawed and it makes you unworthy of love and belonging. Belonging, yeah, that's the key, and and we are willing to abandon ourselves to belong, which is ironic because then we've abandoned ourselves and our true selves feel abandoned, not belonging, right? Mm, mm. But I was recently lucky enough to have a conversation with a guy named Gavin De Becker who wrote a book called The Gift of Fear. He's a brilliant, brilliant expert on fear and violence, and uh, we got talking about how public speaking. This is in his book, The Gift of Fear. Public speaking is much more frightening to human beings than um, death, uh, guns, sharks, knives, anything dangerous that we're afraid of. We are less afraid of than getting up on a stage in front of people and talking for a while. Mm. And the reason is that um, if those people don't like what we say, we experience it as being cast out from the group. We're already singled out now. If they look at us with disapproval or we don't, satisfy them we're out and that is emotional and often physical death especially for a small child so mm. children are really shameable shame vulnerable but we all have we remain vulnerable unless we do something about it which i think which is what we're going to talk about today but yeah it's it's a survival need and it is more fearful than being attacked or any other it's the number one fear we have so we can sh be shamed by the people in our lives. That's where we're we're vulnerable, and it can happen in real time, right? And yeah. and when we were talking about this, I said it's like the Greek chorus in those sort of ancient Greek plays, um, where you the I don't know if you guys know this, but there's this sort of strange phenomenon in the theatre, which um, was that there would be on stage there's the characters who are in the scene, and then there's the chorus, which is just a group of people. I don't know how many people it would be, like five or something. And didn't they wear masks or something? Yeah, yeah. Um, and these, this collection of people would all speak in unison, I think. And they have their own lines, but it's just the voice of the chorus and, it, and they represent society. So they represent the the people at large and how they're responding to these events. That's and so I, interesting. Yeah, right? I thought they were the gods, but the gods are the ones that come down from the machine at the end and save the characters so that the writer doesn't have to come up with a good plot resolution. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so easy back then. I know. <clears throat> but it's so interesting that they'd get this group of people like who it's a it's a strange device and they would all chant things in unison like it's been a long time since i read oedipus rex but i remember them chanting things like don't kill that dude he's your father 
Yeah, you know? that's exactly what it was. Um, I know we've cancelled Woody Allen, but Woody Allen pre-cancellation was um, had a movie called um, Mighty Aphrodite and the movie had a chorus. And I do remember, and this was very prophetic, that the chorus in that movie at one point went, Woody, don't be a schmuck. <laughs> but did he listen to the chorus? They never did, did they? No, they never no, did. No, the tragic heroes never listened to the damn chorus. But I hasten to add, nor should you. <laughs> nor should you. Not if it's the Greek chorus of shame in your head. Yes. And, and what happens, there's a, it's so interesting. I think there were like six people in the chorus, which would be fascinating because psychologists tell us that in our head are spaces for about six people, like a maximum of six people called the generalized other. Hmm. And every time you like pick out a pair of shoes or a bar of soap for that matter, your generalized other is approving or disapproving and you will alter your behavior based on having the internalized voice of the shaming others. Because in the past you've literally been shamed exactly. by them. Exactly. And what that happens, it's so, this is not, just a spoken behavior like you don't it's not the talking that is the most shaming thing it's the tone and the energy of it because people who study baboon troops have seen that they have the same issues and so it doesn't it's not linguistic it goes right to the amygdala which is a very primitive fight or flight turn on switch in this Mm. case and it creates so much fear just with one experience that you will never go against that unless you deliberately decide to undo that particular wiring in your brain. Wow. Yeah. yeah it's powerful shit. Yeah. Try growing up Mormon. Uh, thanks. I'll, I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I tasted champagne, I was 31. It was my first alcoholic beverage ever. They gave it to me. The shame, I mean, you know, the non, the no alcohol thing. I literally thought the plane would crash because I had tasted champagne. That's how strong the shaming was. I thought God is going to punish me. And at this point, I was like an atheist. I was like, it's not like I believed it anymore. It was my amygdala. Wow, yeah. Going, the wrath of God is coming down on you. It lays a a really deep track, doesn't it? The past shamings. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yikes. And we all, I think, have individual... um, variety of things that where we were actively shamed that are so painful um yeah and it's a big problem so when we talk about being shamed Mm. just to give you some references it's like when somebody looks at you and goes oh so that's what you're wearing yeah exactly or or you don't still listen to house music do you like really that's seriously on your playlist (laughs) but they don't have to do all that much no they don't even have to elaborate on it right a simple eye roll will do fine yeah yeah exactly so i think the thing is that we all have areas where we're very vulnerable to being shamed like areas of secret shame or where we secretly to go to brene's um uh, definition where we suspect we might have a flaw um, or where we won't, where we don't belong. Mm. And, you know, and by the same token, it's funny that we also, as Marty and I were talking about this, we realized there's also areas where you can't be shamed, where, you know, everyone has certain areas and they won't be the same. Yeah. So, you know, like, so for me, one of the areas where I can be very deeply shamed is 
uh, about being like a good greenie, like not creating extra waste and, you know, all those sort of environmental credentials are very important to me. Oh, if if this woman touches a paper towel, it is just like... (laughs) sackcloth and ashes <laughs> <laughs> it's not strictly true and that's part of why i'm deeply in shame deeply all the time. um but you know i can't be i can't be shamed around like oh, you're stupid like school wasn't a problem for me and it was for so many people yeah. that 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 sort of idea can i know is very hard for some people because you have that suspicion and i have it in all kinds of places honestly but um but yeah, so school or being smart enough or, or whatever isn't, wasn't an area where I could be shamed. Isn't that funny that we have, both you and I have this very narrow band of places where it's really easy for us to learn. Uh. And and that happened to coincide with our culture's educational system. So we're like, yeah, we're fine. No worries. And all the people out there who have a slightly different, you know, neurology or dyslexia or something, we're in hell of shame all the way through school. And we ended up unshameable because we got lucky in that area. Interesting. Yeah. It's like, it's not smart. It's called good at school. <laughs> yeah. Good at one thing, school. Yeah. So, um, so what about you? What's like, where can you be shamed or not be shamed? Well, the one place I can be badly shamed. Oh, and this actually did happen at school because in my family, we were all encouraged to be very smart alecky and, you know. Mm. So I I got very much shamed by, for being too obvious about being smart, like for being arrogant, for being a mm. show off. I mean, I had ta- teachers take me out in the hall and go, all right, I know you're smart. You don't have to try to prove it. And I, I literally didn't know what they were talking about. But damn, was I ever shamed. It's interesting because that's like there's a school culture and a home culture. And when you're a kid and you're so... Um, you know, it's also foundational and you're trying yeah. to learn the rules. And it's like, wait, but I was obeying the rules of home culture. And, exactly. Um, but breaking the rules of school culture. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's the complexity of culture is they all have different rules and you go to different places and have to be different people if, if you're going to be a cultural being. Right? And it's really like you're being stabbed in different ways for doing different things. Like there are different consequences for different actions in any different social setting. Different consequences for the same For the actions. same action. That's yeah. what's so confusing about it. Yeah, yeah. it's horrifying. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, yeah. for some reason, I am completely unshameable about never getting out of my pajamas and bathrobe ever, even when the bathrobe becomes so spattered with oil paint (laughs) and maybe other things, I don't know. But when it's oil paint, I'm literally proud to be in this (laughs) incredibly disgusting velour bathroom (laughs) covered with paint. People come to the door and I'm like, yeah, what are you looking at? (laughs) I'm cool. Gosh, if you were shameable about that, you would just be a, a puddle of shameful time because well, I'd have to get out of my damn pajamas. Yeah, maybe you would. That ain't happening. Nah. Because I'm unshameable around that. Unshameable. Mm, yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about our experiences. Yeah, of let's being get a shamed. couple. We thought we'd give you a couple of real life experiences because you may really identify with this. So we were trying. What was yours? You. Yeah, so I I had a friend who at a certain time in my life who, I don't know, I think that she sort of sensed that one area where I'm very shameable is that because I had a, a sort of unusual kind of upbringing, I 
um, I didn't, I felt like I didn't really always get the rules of society at large. Like I didn't get how normal people were. And I've always had this suspicion that like, everyone else understands the rules and I don't know. And maybe everyone has that in fairness, but no, I like, think, I think probably only children like you have it more. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so I would be hanging out with this friend and she would be able to cut me down very easily by saying, you don't do that. Whatever it was that I was proposing to do. And later on, as I got older, I was like, hang on, plenty of people do that. Well, what did she say you don't do? I don't want to. Okay, I get it. Yeah, I totally get yeah, that. Yeah, I don't want to get into it. We shall not speak of it. Yeah, but, um, you know, you can imagine there's sort of the, the rules of society say that if you are at someone else's house, you don't do something or if you're, you know. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But the things you were doing were not bad. They were just, she decided to shame you because it was a, it was um, a thing she did. Um, yeah. So, and, and I'll just say yeah. that since... Um, she's not in my life anymore. And I realized that the, you know, only child, highly sensitive person kind of stuff is, it's also something that I can now claim a lot of the time and, and revel in, if anything. Absolutely. Yeah. Because Love the fact it. is by trying so hard to read the rules of every room, mm -hmm. you're better at reading the room than almost anyone I know. And I'm better at being able to reject it these days as well. Reject the rules. Like, yeah, yeah I'm all right. <laughs> So I chose an experience that was actually a turning point for me in, sh in terms of shame because I was always trying to be, I have this very like grovelly lapdog personality. So I was always trying to fit in and, and achieve and be like, if do it right, you yeah. know, be at the top of whatever. And it wasn't that I was trying to be better than other people. I just thought I had to do that to deserve to live. Mm. And, um, then when I was 25, I got pregnant and it turned out midway through and I was at Harvard, you may have read the book, and um, the baby was diagnosed with Down syndrome and I thought, okay, knowledge is power. I was devastated, but I went out and I got books on raising children with Down syndrome and I remember at the Harvard bookstore, there, were, there was this massive section of books on how to make your baby smarter mm. and one book on how to raise a child with a developmental disability. And it had two kids playing Down syndrome and uh, playing leapfrog. They had Down syndrome. They were playing leapfrog in this grainy, nasty, black and white photograph mm. on the cover of this book. And I took it home and I started to read it to try to prepare myself. And it, it said things like, you know, in potty training your child, um, getting praise from friends and relatives is a big part of the normal child's development. But since your child will not be able to get praise from relatives or friends and wow. will have no friends, wow. you will have to be it. You're going to have to use other methods. The and, book was shaming you. Oh, yeah. And it was like an institutional book. And, um, you know, for people who run asylums or something. And then it said, um, you should learn to get familiar with the feeling of being ashamed everywhere you go with your child. Wow. And when I read that, something snapped inside me. And I took that book and I threw it across the room so hard that when it hit the wall, it literally exploded. <laughs> and just hundreds of pages of crap went floating to the ground. And I was like, F that. That is not happening. Yeah. And I decided I will not be ashamed of my child. And then I kind of went, 
holy shit, I, I will not. I, I, can make, I can make a choice about this. Mm. I have the right to be. I mean, I missed one math question in second grade and literally went and sat in the snow waiting to die <laughs> because I thought that Jesus. I should freeze to death because I had m- messed up. Oh, That's how name. ingrained I was into the school culture. And yet here was this kid who wouldn't be good at that. And I was able to stop being ashamed of it right there. What's interesting to me is that, and and as someone who's relatively recently become a mother myself, I I feel the difference between, like, I feel like it's easier as a parent to make that switch consciously to being unshameable when it's on behalf of your yeah. child. Yeah. Um, and you can actually decide to do it and consciously say, okay, now I'm going to be unshameable. But I think it's much harder to go through the same process on your own account because somehow we can see in our child that they're not flawed, that they do belong, Mm -hmm. all those things. But, you know, we're so – we have so much more conflict around accepting those ideas in ourselves. Yeah. And I just wonder, like, maybe that's what we can get at today in this episode is how can we treat ourselves with the same sort of certainty of of perfection and entitlement of love and and belonging and all of that sort of thing as we can for our children? Well, I think, yeah, if you look at it even in terms of harsh Darwinian logic or harsh Richard Dawkinsian logic, the one thing that our genes would program us for – um, even harder than saving ourselves is saving our children. Mm. So the instinct that arises is one of protection. Right. And to be able to say, I will access that that instinct for myself, I actually think it's the best gift we could give our own children because, or and anyone we know, because when we choose to be unshameable about, in a way that liberates us to be our best selves, the example we set helps everyone. Mm. It sets everybody free to be themselves a little bit. Mm. Mm. I completely agree with that. Yeah. So let's figure out how to do it. So what it seems like to me is that there are moments, there's space between the attempted shaming that mm-hmm. someone else does at us, like mm. they get their little laser gun of shame right and shoot it and there's a moment where the laser is still traveling Hmm. and i i just like okay let's call it like a crossroads to mix metaphors like a shame crossroads so in the moment when someone attempts to shame you you reach that crossroads or choice point Mm -hmm. and if you can slow down those moments enough and be conscious enough about what's happening in that interchange you can find that they're it doesn't feel like there's any moment there. It feels like, ching, ow, you know, yeah. it's immediately, you've immediately been wounded. But you, that, but if you can slow it down, there is a moment between the shaming and the shame. Mm. So the, the, the thing coming at you and the, the way you internalize it. And, exactly. and maybe it, even if you just got it close to that in proximity, like you feel a bolt of shame and then you go, oh, I know this feeling. I know this game. Oh, sure. That, and that's the more realistic thing. And then you can like, ping, ping, like you feel that you get shame, ping, but then you just unshame yourself. Pyong, pyong. And, you, and you get your shield and then the shame bounces off your oh shield and hits them God. back in their own little shame glands. Shameless, the superhero. Okay, so when we reach a crossroads, um, it's any place where we're being 
pushed to abandon ourselves. So like if somebody says to you, <clears throat> eat with a fork, mm. not um, a spoon, you're, and you're not ashamed of it, it's like, fine, I'm happy with a fork, not a spoon. Or today I'll eat with a spoon. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. But if it's something like uh, hide your child inside, never let him see the light of day, it's yeah. like, well, no. Or you're not going to wear that outside the house, are you? Damn right I am. <laughs> I have landscapes to paint and I need to be warm. Yeah, so you can you can decide at that moment at the crossroads where you can feel the pressure mm. um, to abandon yourself. And it, it feels, it's that horrible pain of feeling like you don't belong. But if we can get a bit of fight in there with the flight mm. and say, wait, I'm not sure this is, that this is worth taking on. And I think that's, you know, that's what Eleanor Roosevelt was saying when she said no one can make you feel inferior without your permission, mm. right? That there is actually something that you have to sign up for. Right. Even though it doesn't feel like that yeah. initially. It reminds me of, um, God, I don't know, I think I saw this on some sort of British comedy special or panel show or something um, where someone made some very cheap joke and said to the other person, oh, no pun intended. And and the first guy goes, oh, none received. <laughs> and it's sort of like that thing where there, there's, there's shame is being intended at you, but you don't have to pick it up. You have like, you, you, you can't, they can't shame you ultimately without your permission. Without you receiving it. Without you receiving it. So yeah. shame intended, none received. Boom. Booyah. So, but this is obviously a really hard thing to do. Yeah. It's hard to stand up to the Greek chorus. Oh, my God. Yeah. Mm, mm. However, both of us had, to, as we talked about this, we've done it in places in our lives, and we came up with a kind of some ideas that might help you guys, too. Because, like, what better than to walk through our own lives being unshameable? Wouldn't that just be the most amazing feeling? Mm. So here are our ideas. Here are some of them. Um I think that first you have to let in the truth of the situation. So is there something that needs to be owned by you? Because shame and I want to say like denial or pushing away the truth can sort of have that same knee-jerk feeling, I think. And so like take a breath and go, is there something that I need to own here? Did I do something that they're saying or implying that I did? Uh, so yeah, you have to actually take it on board. Like once my first week in graduate school, I just saw a picture of this professor online. He was, he was very, very famous sociologist and I had never even had a sociology class and he had us write a prediction about the future. He was a futurologist. And so I wrote this prediction about the future and he took me apart in front of all the other graduate students. I mean, he went through the paper line by line and just blasted it. And after class, my classmates gathered around me and they were like, are you okay? Are you still alive? And I was like, no, he was right. Mm. Mm. (laughs) He was right on every single point. And I can deal with that. Right. And so he, he he may have been attempting to shame you, but he didn't know that he was in one of your areas of unshameability. Um, unshameability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Couldn't yeah. do it. I don't go there, sir. Yeah. But no, that's right. So, so. Um, but I did what he said and I agreed with him when I thought about it. So that's actually part of the not, the unshameable is being able to, to own 
something that, oh, okay, yes, I made a mistake. I'm not going to beat myself up about it, but I did do it. Right, yeah. right. So the, the key thing then is if you did it, you have to judge it by your real values, by your wild nature values right. instead of by any of the zillion cultural entities that could be pressuring you. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, I really messed up on that paper, but why? Did I do anything wrong according to my own values or my own knowledge? I was doing the best I could. I just didn't know anything about sociology. I choose not to be ashamed because mm. mm. I didn't do it on purpose and it was a learning experience. And I just, I re it was not in violation of my own value system. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good to, like, it's good to take that moment to actually define what your values are as well. Like yeah. that's always a useful, you know, little exercise, right? Oh yeah. Read yeah. my last book, The Way of Integrity. There's a whole exercise about how to do it. There you go. And so if it if you find that you ask yourself that question, yeah, actually, according to my own values, I have contravened my values in some way. Like there is something bad, I think, in what I did according to my values, then it's actually a fairly straightforward situation where, you know, there might be an apology to be made and a behavior change to kind of log in yourself yeah. so that you are in integrity with your values you are in in accordance with your own values cool yeah i had a cartoonist friend he was a political cartoonist and one day he was getting a ton of hate mail and i said dang that that is gnarly and he said oh no i deserve it um it was a really spiteful over the top cartoon i shouldn't have i should never have published it i was just amazed by the way he was like no i'm good with it because he needed that in his position. He had to ride that line. So he would just go, you make a solid point. Hmm. And I found that to be a great thing to say to people who are trying to shame you. If, they, if you hmm. actually agree with them, you make a solid point. Yeah. We say in Australia, we say fair cop. Fair cop. Yeah. Fair game to you. That's Irish, right? Fair play to you. Bless I'm your so heart. so ashamed. <laughs> I got my Irish wrong. Fair play to you, matey. No, that's pirate. <laughs> <laughs> so easy to confuse those. So, so if you realize that what you did, what you did do it, but it wasn't against your value system. In fact, it may have been something you did that was very courageous to defend your value system, like standing up against oppression or something. Right. Um, you have to detach from the value system that's shaming you. Mm, mm. Yeah, which is probably easier said than done. Um, you have to stop believing in the culture at least a little bit because you're only shameable if you believe that what you've done was wrong mm. even though in your own value system it isn't but because the culture says it is you believe them just that little bit and it's enough to get you all turned around right right and so to detach from the belief system of the of the greek chorus let's just say you know that that's it is a choice but it's not easy because you know and it, and it comes into this area of of the work that Martha does and teaches in her life coach training and everything which is is about uh, learning to not necessarily believe your own thoughts which is a whole huge area with you know lots <laughs> I mean, we couldn't even begin to yeah. but um the Byron Katie work is one yeah. way to do that um Stephen Hayes's The Liberated Mind is a great book on it um it's all behavioral cognitive therapy does this that's right I mean thought work like a really mega simplified version of of sort of how to do thought work is you know you you define what's going on okay it seems like 
Um, there's a Greek chorus saying, I shouldn't go outside of the house in this outfit. And then, so then the question you ask yourself in that moment to do, this is in the shortcut is, am I sure, <laughs> am I sure that I shouldn't leave the house in this outfit? Is and that's that literally true that I shouldn't. Is <laughs> and it... that's literally true. Well, that's literally true. <laughs> yeah. And if it's like, no, there are cases, you know, there's nothing morally wrong with, uh, with going outside in this bathroom, then like, be proud, like own it, go out there. It's fabulous. I know it is. I do it every day. But, um, you know, as you're talking, I have just been reading about the difference between the way the cortex experiences trauma and the way the amygdala does. So the cortex is the verbal. Mm. So the things we've just talked about, reading a book, going to training or therapy or whatever, it goes through the cortex of the brain, but it doesn't necessarily get to that deep animal pain that we feel if we fear being ousted. And to do that, you actually need um, to connect, either sit and really feel your way through the issue and get really solid that you are serving what is true for you, mm. or get someone to literally be a social support. Get a different, you, you kind of need a, a different Greek chorus. And I got most of mine from books. So mm. you don't necessarily have to have people around you. But a 12-step group that you can go to online a therapist, uh, friends you know are going to be on your side. Um, and if you can, <laughs> be with somebody who can sit with you and look in your eyes and potentially give you a hug because mm. these are the animal experiences mm. that deprogram the amygdala so that you don't have to obey the shaming culture. Yeah, and it makes me think that what the what the hug can do is – so if you – you, are you leaving the house in that outfit? Am I sure that it's wrong to leave the house in that outfit? Okay, deal with the cortex. And then to come back again to Brene Brown's definition, am I sure that leaving the house in this outfit will lead to me not belonging? And what's Is a flaw and a not belonging that, um, that means I'll never get a hug again. And so the amygdala itself can't really continue to believe that that idea whatever however it's programming is if you're getting a hug because clearly you're still belonging yeah and it's primal and it's sensory and even if you've had all the talk therapy on earth there's nothing like looking into the eyes and feeling the embrace of someone who says you're okay the way you are yeah oh okay we're nearly done folks but um i i love this idea you had though ro and I'd yeah. love you to tell them because this is something that changed me when you said it. Yeah, well, I had the thought that, okay, so we're sh shameable in some areas, we're not shameable in others. Like maybe the fact that when we notice, oh, that's funny, I'm shameable in this area, we could, that's a little bit of self-knowledge that we've got about maybe somewhere where we've still got work to do on ourselves because that vulnerability points to a belief, you know, that, that there's a flaw. Right. Yeah. The way you put it was to me was use the moment of the shame mm. as a signal to work on the areas where you're still shameable. Right. And if you do that and you start un un undoing the shame with this simple method, am I sure? Is it true? What, yeah. what do I really believe? Can I get a hug? Um, can I get a hug from a bear? <laughs> I'm sorry. That just came into my head. Um, 
I'm also not that shameable around my ADD and my obsession with animals. I'm just, that's just who I am. But here's the thing. If you use that over and over, it becomes a process that itself is deeply ingrained and becomes an automatic reflexive response. And if you can fully be in your own belief instead of being a slave to the shaming culture, you really are free. Yeah. It's, wow. it's like the Buddha said, enlightenment tastes of freedom. That's moving toward enlightenment. Amen. One final note that I want to make sure that we bring up is just the recognition that it's only when we have shame inside us that we shame other people. And so if you're being shamed, to be aware that that's coming from someone with shame and that the work we do on undoing our own shame and our own shameability is worked in the larger sense as well. Yeah, because we don't want to be anyone's shaming Greek chorus. We want everyone to live by their true nature, especially you. Absolutely. So stay Stay wild. We hope you're enjoying Bewildered. If you're in the USA and want to be notified when a new episode comes out, text the word WILD to 570-873-0144. For more of us, Martha's on Instagram, the Martha Beck. She's on Facebook, the Martha Beck. And she's on Twitter, Martha Beck. Her website is marthabeck.com. And me, I too am on Instagram, Rowan underscore Mangan. I'm on Facebook as Rowan Mangan. And I'm on Twitter as Rowan Mangan. Bewildered is produced by Scott Forster with support from the brilliant team at MBI. You know, what I'm seeing out in the world is a lot of fear and a growing amount of despair. Maybe you're feeling that way too, because the ways our culture has taught us to navigate the world, to navigate our lives, they are failing us. We need a new language. We need a new set of tools to find our way individually and as a group. And I know we can still do this. I put everything I do know about it into Wayfinder Life Coach Training. And the tools that I teach there are to help people redefine how we relate to each other, how we make a living, how we do community. We can only change the world for the better if we redefine how we think and the world needs Wayfinders now more than ever. So please go to MarthaBeck.com and you'll find your way. <laughs>